like that song, gospel lyrics. Let's hear from the word of the Lord this morning. Pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, we do live indeed by grace alone. It is only your unmerited favor that has saved us, but we need it, we need it continually. We need the grace even that comes from the instruction of your word. So I pray that you'd give us that grace now. Empower me to speak it and work in your people to hear it and be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most dangerous flying situations that a pilot can face is what's known as a spin. Also called a tailspin, a spin is a situation in which not only is the aircraft stalling, which means there's no longer lift being generated by the wings, so instead of actually flying, it's just falling. But in a spin, you're not only falling, but you're actually rotating continually as you move towards the ground. And it only takes a few moments for an airplane to enter a spin. The pilot can be just doing just fine, flying high, makes a little turn, and if the plane is at an improper angle based on its speed and direction, immediately the plane starts careening downwards. You can imagine how frightening and disorienting a spin would be. I watched a few videos of flight instructors demonstrating how to get into and out of a spin, and just watching it, I felt my heart was being, being constrained. It was literally heart-wrenching to watch whether from the outside or the inside, because you just see how quickly a plane can go out of control. And it's so obvious from watching that if something decisive is not done quickly, that plane and everyone on it is going to crash. And those inside will perish. Now, thankfully, there's a proven protocol for getting an airplane out of a spin. But the steps that a pilot needs to take are actually a little bit counterintuitive. You have to do, in some ways, the opposite of what you feel in order to successfully rescue the airplane. But have you ever felt like your whole life was caught in a spin? Like you yourself were like a plane that's suddenly and wildly heading towards the ground. Maybe everything has been going well for you. You were flying just fine, but then suddenly there's this severe and unexpected setback in your life. And now you're spiraling toward the earth. Or maybe you've been experiencing emergencies for a while. You're amazed your plane is still in the air. You've lost one engine. Your cabin's been depressurized. You've got the oxygen mask on. You're just trying to cling to the Lord, trying to continue to serve Him, holding things together. But then <laughs> something else goes wrong. And you look down at your instruments and you say, that's it. I can't take anymore. And now you're going down. Our society has a term for this kind of feeling or mood. It's depression. But I think a better term, a more biblical term, is hopelessness, despair. The world is filled with hopelessness because life is hard. And people do not know the true God who is the only God of hope. But even believers, even strong believers can fall into hopelessness. 
It happens quickly. We even see this happening in the scriptures. In fact, this morning, I'd like us to take a look at one of those, one of those times. One of those instances in the scriptures where a believer not only experienced hopelessness, but also experienced the restorative ministry of God himself back to hope and back to obedience. As we look at this account from the scriptures, we're going to find encouragement for our own encounters with hopelessness and we'll also become more equipped to help others who are struggling. Please take your Bibles and open to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19. This is the chapter right after the one read earlier. The title of the sermon today is God is working in the silence. God is working in the silence. And that is the main message of our passage today. That is the main comfort of our passage. When we encounter despair, when we run into hopelessness, we need to remember that God is working in the silence. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter of chapter 19, verses 1 to 21, but to appreciate what's going on here in this section of historical narrative, we need to know the context. We've gotten a little bit already from the scripture reading today. We're in the divided kingdom period. King Ahab, wicked King Ahab, is reigning in the northern kingdom along with his evil wife, Jezebel. And these two have begun to propagate the worship of a Canaanite god, the Canaanite storm god, Baal. They're trying to replace Yahweh with Baal in Israel, and many Israelites have gotten on board. They've abandoned Yahweh altogether, or they've tried to serve Baal and Yahweh at the same time. Meanwhile, the true prophets of God have been hunted down and killed by Jezebel, the wicked queen. But then Elijah comes on the scene. Seemingly out of nowhere, 1 Kings 17, Elijah arrives, this prophet, and he announces judgment from God on the two monarchs. He says, it will not rain anymore in Israel until I say so. Then begins a period of drought for the next three and a half years. Elijah has to go on the run. God miraculously hides and also provides for Elijah during those three and a half years while Israel suffers. But then in 1 Kings 18, which is what Greg read earlier, God sends Elijah back into Israel, back to confront Ahab and back to confront the false prophets of Baal. They engage in a little contest at Mount Carmel to see which God, either Yahweh or Baal, is able to send fire, probably meaning lightning from heaven, to consume a sacrifice. What's the result of the contest? Baal loses, Yahweh wins. Elijah proclaims, and you heard this, Elijah proclaims that Yahweh has turned the heart of his people back. He has the people execute the false prophets of Baal, and he tells King Ahab, get ready for the rain to return. God's sending it back. And before the rainstorm comes, Elijah supernaturally outruns Ahab's chariot the 17 miles from Mount Carmel to Ahab's winter capital in Jezreel. These are some pretty dramatic events. But what happens next? Our text. 1 Kings 19. Rather than reading it all at once and then going back, we're going to read and analyze the sections as we go through. We can divide the passage into five sections, and I'm going to give you five different headings as we move through. That's how we're going to organize our approach. Our first section of this passage in 1 Kings 19, verses 1 to 4. Read it with me. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, 
so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, that is O Yahweh, covenant name of God there, O Yahweh, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. What's this first section? We can give the heading, Servant Despairs. God's servant despairs. Notice in verse 1, Ahab tells Jezebel what Elijah did at Carmel. Hey, honey, he killed all your prophets. All of them. And in verse 2, we see that Jezebel sends Elijah a threatening message. Basically saying, may the gods punish me severely if I don't kill you like you killed my prophets. Now the fact that, I don't know if you caught this, the fact that Jezebel sends a messenger rather than an assassin or an executioner, it's kind of significant. It kind of suggests that she actually doesn't really have the power to kill Elijah. Also, she's appealing to gods that Elijah knows are false, so why be afraid of that? But notice verse 3, Elijah's response. It is fear. He runs for his life all the way to Beersheba. And Beersheba is at the southern end of the southern kingdom of Judah. It's as far away in the land of Israel as he can get from Jezebel, right on the border of the wilderness. He doesn't even feel safe in God-fearing Judah. Judah actually has a righteous king at this time. You'd think he would have been safe there, but he doesn't feel safe. He also noticed in verse 3, he dismisses his servant. Elijah, don't you need the help of your servant for doing ministry and for returning to ministry? Well, verse 4 Elijah makes quite clear that he never intends to return to prophetic ministry. It says he goes a day's journey into the wilderness. And remember when we hear wilderness in Israel, we're talking a place very difficult to survive. The southern wilderness below Judah, this is a barren, rocky desert. He goes into this wilderness, sits down under a juniper tree, and then he asks for God to kill him. Talk about a tailspin. Elijah, what's happened to you? Is this the same man, the same prophet of God who just stood up against 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah? What's going on? We get a clue into Elijah's mind when we hear him speak in verse 4. Notice what he says. He first says to God, it is enough. What's that? This is that short cry of resigned despair that I think we've all uttered at different times in our lives. God, I've had enough. I've reached my limit. I can't take anymore. I can't go on. This is too much for me. And then he says to God, secondly, now, O Yahweh, take my life. Have you ever been overwhelmed by the troubles in your life so much that you wanted to die? That's what Elijah is feeling here. Now, significant, he doesn't actually attempt to kill himself. And there are other righteous men in the scriptures who similarly want to die, but they don't try to kill themselves. That's not man's right. 
but he is hoping that God will kill him. And then third, he says to God, for I am not better than my father's. Not better in what way, Elijah? Do you mean not more righteous? Not more able to difficulty? Not more able to produce change in Israel? Probably all of those things. In fact, to get a handle on the change that has taken place in Elijah's mind, we have to keep in mind what he's saying in verse 4 with what has just taken place in 1 Kings 18. Why has Elijah turned from bold faith to fearful despair? It's simple. Dashed expectations. Dashed expectations. You see, Elijah loves the Lord. He hates Baalism, and he longs for his people to turn back to Yahweh. And with the Mount Carmel showdown, Elijah thought Israel was on the verge of revival. He said as much. Three and a half years are coming to an end. God's turned his people back. The rain is coming back. Elijah runs excitedly to the capital in Jezreel. He's ready to advise Ahab. He's ready to oversee the turning of this syncretistic nation into what it was supposed to be, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does Elijah find when he goes to Jezreel? Not the swell of support that he expected, but instead apathy. Apathy from the people, apathy from the king, and even worse, he finds that the decisive defeat of Baal and his prophets at Carmel has not daunted Queen Jezebel at all. She's as defiant as ever. And though her ability to inflict vengeance seems to be temporarily limited, she is determined to see Baalism triumph over Yahwehism in Israel. So then to Elijah, all that effort, all that hope, all that ministry over the years, how Elijah faithfully sought to pursue the Lord's work, it seemed like it was for nothing. Nothing to show for it. Nothing is changing. God, what is the point? Who can keep going when it's all useless? God, please just kill me now. I'm no superhero. I can't keep going when there's no hope of victory or relief. Has your heart ever said the same as Elijah's? Did you have some hope or expectation that you were longing for in your life only to see it dashed maybe multiple times? God, I thought my spouse would change. My spouse is as wicked as ever. God, I I thought you'd heal me from this illness. It's only gotten worse. God, I, I thought you'd use me to save my family. Now they've disowned me. Nothing working out. Why is nothing changing? God, where are you? If your heart has cried this way, excuse me a moment. If your heart has cried this way, then keep listening. Because God has a word to you this morning. We've seen the first section. 
The servant despairs. But now God re-enters the picture to help his downcast servant. Our next section is verses 5 to 8. God ministers. God ministers. Verse 5. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there is an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of Yahweh came again and said a second time and touched him. I came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. In this next section of text, we find something very surprising. At Elijah's doubting cry of despair, we do not find a word of rebuke from God. Nor do we find a word of comfort or instruction. Not yet. Instead, we find the Lord himself tenderly meeting Elijah's needs. After all, Elijah's very distressed. No doubt he was frantically running from Jezebel. So he must be exhausted. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. So what does the Lord provide for Elijah? Food. Drink. Sleep. Notice in verse 7, it identifies the ministering angel, the one giving aid to Elijah here, as the angel of Yahweh. If you've been with us in Sunday school before, you know that that's a, that's a very specific title. The rest of the Old Testament reveals that the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh. So when God sends aid to Elijah, he's not just sending an angel. He himself is coming down to minister and meet Elijah's basic needs. What a God. And friends, do you realize that the same God who tenderly comes down to minister to Elijah is the God that if you're in Christ, ministers to you. He cares for you in the same way, even when you face despair. Twice Elijah sleeps, twice Elijah eats. And notice why specifically God urges him to eat in verse 7. God tells him, the journey is too great for you. In other words, where you're going, Elijah, you're going to need a little bit more sustenance than what you have up to this point. Verse 8 says that Elijah goes in the strength of that food and drink for 40 days and 40 nights. Now that phrase should sound a little familiar. Or else have we seen a man of God go 40 days and 40 nights without eating or drinking. If you know your Old Testament a little bit, that sounds like Moses. And where was Moses going for 40 days and 40 nights in such a way? Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, which is where Elijah is going. Something important, you see, is about to go down at this ancient site of revelation to Moses and to Israel. But it's going to be a little different. A little different than when Moses went there. That's what we see next in our third section. We've seen the servant despairs. We've seen God ministers. But now our third section, verses 9 to 14, the center of our text, God instructs. God instructs. Look at this section. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, 
I have been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I've been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, but the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. In verse 9, we immediately start to discover more details that should remind us, as they surely reminded Elijah, of Moses' earlier encounter with Yahweh at this mountain. In Exodus 33, verse 18, you might remember, Moses requests to see the glory of Yahweh. Show me your glory. God grants Moses' request, but it has to be in a particular way. He says, uh, I'm going to hide you, Moses, in this cleft of a rock, which is another way to describe a cave, and I'm going to pass by. Once I pass by, I'll let you see my back. This is what happens. Moses goes to, to gaze at God's back, and when he does so, God declares his name to Moses. And after hearing God describe himself, describe his name, Moses bows down to him. Amazing moment of revelation in the Old Testament. We have a similar setup here in our text. But notice the word that comes to Elijah in verse 9. What are you doing here, Elijah? This question is a gentle rebuke to Elijah. God is telling Elijah, I know there's no good reason for you to be here, Elijah. You're supposed to be back in Israel, serving and speaking for me. So what are you doing here? Because this is framed in the form of a question, though, God does give Elijah the chance to explain himself. God is willing to listen to Elijah. And notice in verse 10, Elijah, in reply, gives a very depressing and mostly true report of the situation in Israel. He says, I've been very zealous and faithful on your behalf, God, which is true, but Israel has been stubbornly unfaithful, resistant to your prophets. They've tried to kill them all, which is also true. But I'm the only one left. Is that true? Elijah actually made the same claim back at Carmel when he met with the prophets of Baal. He says, I'm the only prophet of Yahweh left. But if you were paying attention in the beginning of 1 Kings 18, Obadiah says, I've actually hit another hundred prophets of Yahweh. So Elijah's not the only one left. Perhaps he's the only active prophet in Israel, publicly active. Or maybe he's just not being accurate here. Certainly he feels like he's the only one left. He feels very alone. And if you've ever dealt with despair, you know, you know that feeling. You feel like you're all alone. We can sum up Elijah's reply to God this way. 
You want to know why I'm here? I'm here because the situation in Israel is hopeless. I fought hard, but the people are unmoved. They've killed everyone else. Surely I'm next. So why go on? Why keep fighting a doomed battle? God, give me some reason. Show me some sign that it's worth it to take up the sword and shield again. God gives Elijah a sign, all right, but it's probably not the one Elijah expects. Notice in verse 11, it says, Behold, Yahweh was passing by. Whoa, you're going to see Yahweh himself passing by you, Elijah. Talk about an amazing revelation. Get ready. And at first, it looks like Elijah is going to get the full Moses Sinai experience. There's this succession of rock-splitting wind, earthquake, and fire. These were awesome. These were terrifying and very much similar to the kinds of phenomena that Israel experienced when they went to Sinai. But there's one great difference. Exodus 19.18, for instance, says, Yahweh descended upon Mount Sinai in fire. Yahweh was present in the fire. But what do we read here? Yahweh was not in the wind, not in the earthquake, and not in the fire. And what comes after the fire? And what is the only manifestation that doesn't have the accompanying phrase that Yahweh was not in it? Our text reads, After the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. This is one of the most intriguing statements in all the Bible. And it's translated different ways. King James famously translates it as a still, small voice. ESV says, the sound of a low whisper. NIV says, a gentle whisper. Why these differences in translation? Part of the reason is because the phrase itself doesn't seem to make sense on its own. Literally, the Hebrew here is, for this phrase, the sound or the voice of a thin silence. Wait a second. Silence is the absence of sound. So what is the sound of silence? And what is a thin silence? How is that different from regular silence? Translators do their best to understand this phrase. But I think the phrase's mystery is actually part of the point. Because you see, after all the clamor of that rock-splitting wind, the earthquake, and the blaze. What comes next for Elijah is something so extraordinary. A silent, thin sound. Or as one translator put it, a vibrant silence. And out of all these phenomena, which of these actually manifested the Lord's presence? It was the last one. It was the silence. And Elijah himself realizes this, because notice in verse 13, it's when he hears the silence that Elijah wraps his face in a cloak and goes out to the entrance of the cave to see Yahweh passing by. Now, do you see the implications of this for Elijah? Despairing Elijah has come all the way to Sinai because he doesn't see Yahweh at work in Israel or in his life. Elijah wants to see some dramatic action, Yahweh, show me some Sinai fire in Israel. I want to see you on the move. But what does God do? God shows Elijah, I can bend heaven and earth to my will in dramatic fashion. 
That's not the way I'm choosing to work right now. You think because you don't see or hear anything that I am absent. But I tell you, I am there even in the silence. This is the great object lesson that God was showing Elijah at Sinai. And do you see that this same truth applies to God's people today? Those of us, those of us who are in Jesus Christ? Whenever you think that God has abandoned you or is no longer acting faithfully on your behalf, you need to realize that God is actually there in your situation, actually working in the silence. Unseen, unheard, but bringing about his perfect will for your life and for the world. God never stops working for his own sake, for his people's sake, and he's making this same point again and again in the scriptures. Sometimes his work is obvious, loud, dramatic, but other times it is quiet, imperceptible, even silent. This was the instruction God was giving to Elijah. But did Elijah understand it? Apparently not. Because in verse 13, when God asks Elijah again, what Elijah's doing at the mountain, notice Elijah gives the exact same dejected response as before. Elijah didn't get it. Elijah missed the object lesson. He goes back to his prepared speech for why there is no hope in this situation. What does God do? Well, God graciously, patiently comes at the issue from another angle. That takes us to our next section. Our fourth section is verses 15 to 18, where we see God commissions. God commissions. Verse 15. Yahweh said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about, the one who escaped from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escaped from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Notice here that God gives Elijah a new task and direction. God tells Elijah to go back through the wilderness way he came and start heading toward Damascus in Syria. God then tells Elijah that he is to work to anoint three individuals, Hazael, king over Aram, or Syria, Jehu, king over Israel, and then Elisha as the prophet to succeed Elijah. Now notice that these anointings represent some pretty dramatic geopolitical changes. Totally new kings in two nations. And notice the purpose revealed by God about these, or connected with these anointings in verse 17. God reveals these three will work together to put certain fugitives to the sword, that is, to death. Whoever escapes from one man, the other two will make sure to destroy those fugitives. But what fugitives does God have in mind? Well, remember, Elijah has just been complaining to God about how God is doing nothing about the Baal problem in Israel. And verse 18 also has Baal worship as its subject. So the fugitives that God must have in mind here has to do with coming judgment on Baalism 
in Israel. God is saying, you think I'm not doing anything about the heinous Baal worship that's going on before me among my people? I tell you that I am doing something. In fact, you have an important part to play in it. Go and anoint these men that I will use to punish unfaithful Israelites and that I also will use to destroy state-sponsored Baal worship in Israel. Notice, though, in verse 18, God clarifies that not everyone will need to be judged in Israel. God says, There are yet 7,000 who have not bowed and whose lips have not kissed any statue of Baal in worship. And notice the way God phrases it. He doesn't say there are. He says, I will leave 7,000. Why is that phrase significant? because it emphasizes God's total sovereignty. He is in control, even of the hearts and salvation of men. God is telling Elijah, Elijah, big change is coming. Judgment is coming, but also preservation of a faithful remnant is coming. A remnant that I myself will uphold and cause to be faithful. Why would these facts be significant to Elijah? Well, first, because they reveal that God really is active. He has taken notice of the situation. Second, because they reveal that Elijah's zeal for the Lord is not in vain. Elijah, I have given you an important role in bringing about my will. You need to do it. And third, it showed that Elijah was never truly alone. He thought... He even insisted that he was the last faithful Yahweh worshiper in Israel. But God reveals, you're not the only one. There are others like you. I will cause them to stand. I will cause you to stand. Now, therefore, return to the ministry for my sake and for the sake of these people. Really what we're seeing here in this commission is a more direct explanation of the object lesson that God was giving to Elijah before. Elijah, you can't see it yet, but I am, in fact, at work. But you know what's so striking about this commission given by God here to Elijah, to anoint these three men and to have them execute their work of vengeance? What's striking is that Elijah will not be on the earth to see these things unfold. If you keep going in the record of the books of Kings, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, you'll see that everything that God promises here does come to pass, but largely without Elijah's involvement. It's Elisha who anoints Hazael, king of Syria, 2 Kings 8. And it's an unnamed prophetic assistant who anoints Jehu, king over Israel, in 2 Kings 9. So does this mean that Elijah proved derelict in his duties as a prophet. He never really returned to faithful ministry and other people had to jump in for his unfaithfulness? No, I don't think we can say that because you just keep following Elijah in the book of Kings and God keeps affirming him, God keeps using him. And how does Elijah die? He doesn't. He's taken by a chariot of fire into heaven. There's no glory, more glorious, maybe there is more, but I can't think of much more glorious an exit for a man on the earth than that. This was no prophet under God's disapproval. No, Elijah was being faithful. But what's going on here is Elijah 
was never intended to fully accomplish his commission by himself. He was setting the wheels in motion, but it was going to have effects that far outlasted him. Others would literally have to take up the mantle of Elijah to finish the calling given to him. To say it another way, Elijah's important work, given specifically to him by God, it was part of a multi-generational plan. Elijah would not be on the earth to see God's great plan come to its dramatic conclusion. Nevertheless, he had a critical part to play. Do you see the implications for us? Brothers and sisters, you will, you already have, and you will encounter moments where it looks like God is silent. Where great changes seem necessary for your life and for our world, and you don't see anything happening. But take courage from God's commission given to Elijah here. You too have important work to accomplish from the Lord. You have a calling to fulfill. But this work may not manifest its good outcome for a year, five years, 50 years, or maybe until after you're gone. We often get so micro-focused on our struggles, but we also need to take a step back and realize that this is part of a larger plan a great and glorious plan that we can't see the end of yet. God doesn't have to reveal to us how what he's doing fits into that plan. But what we have to do is trust the Lord that he is working out his good purpose for us and through us, and we need to get back to fulfilling his calling to us. Trust the Lord And then to say it somewhat bluntly, get back into the battle. Get back to work. Now, how does Elijah respond to this new commission from God? We see it in our last section. This is the beginning of his response anyways. Verses 19 to 21, we see servant obeys. God's servant obeys. Look at verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he was with the 12. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please, let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. We see in this last section that Elijah gets right to work with part of his new commission from God. Elijah seeks out Elisha and Elisha's village in Israel, and he marks out Elisha for prophetic succession. But would Elisha actually follow Elijah? I mean, so many in Israel are just seeking the Baals. What are the chances that this random Israelite will drop everything to embrace a life of dangerous ministry on behalf of Yahweh? Notice Elisha's response to the ministry in verse 20. 
he says, or rather, he begs that he might have leave to say goodbye to his family. Uh-oh, what's going on here? Is this a sign of hesitation? Is this a sign of repudiation of this calling from God? You might be thinking of Jesus' own experience in the New Testament with some would-be disciples. One of them says, hey, let me go say goodbye to my parents. And Jesus says, the person who looks back, he's not, he's not worthy to plow the field. Is that what's going on with Elisha here? Perhaps Elijah doesn't know, and that's why he says what he does to Elijah, he sa- or to Elisha. He says, basically, you're free to go back. I'm not forcing you to do anything. Choose what you want to do. But Elisha doesn't shirk the calling. On the contrary, Elisha takes the oxen he was just plowing with, along with their yoking equipment, and he prepares a final meal for his family and the people around him, commemorating Elisha's entering Yahweh's prophetic service. In other words, Elisha is totally giving up on his old life to follow Yahweh and to serve Elijah. You think these events were encouraging to Elijah? They sure were, and God assuredly meant them to do so. Not only does Elijah begin to see the Lord's word come to pass, but Elijah gains a faithful fellow minister and a friend in the Lord, someone who is just as zealous for Yahweh as he himself is. And just at the beginning, Elijah is beginning to see, even after I'm gone, the prophet who succeeds me, he will remain faithful to Yahweh. That would be encouraging. Brothers and sisters, we will experience similar blessing and encouragement when we step away from despair and step back into faith-filled obedience to Yahweh. Yes, it will be hard at first to let go of that despairing attitude, that woe is me, that sense of inadequacy, that even self-pity. But as we do, and as we proceed into the work of the Lord, not according to our own strength, but according to God's. Elijah was right about that. I can't do it. I can't handle it. And God says, I know, but I'm sending you. As we do that, we will see the goodness of God again. God still has it out there for us. And you know it's one of the chief ways we see it? And the brothers and sisters who serve alongside us. You won't see it if you never return to the ministry. For his part, Elijah does go on to faithful ministry. We can't trace it this morning, but he goes back and he sees many more times of God working dramatically, powerfully, faithfully in Israel. But he needed this time of reorientation from God away from his spiraling despair. Perhaps you need the same. Do you realize that this passage that we've just looked at has been provided by God to you today to help you in your encounters with despair and also to help you help others when they're facing despair? Actually, the truths that we've seen just summarizing each one of these sections, it actually forms a pretty good application outline for dealing with despair. Let me show you. If we just go through the five points again, the five headings. Number one, serve in despairs. 
all of God's servants will face temptation to discouragement and despair. I'm sure you already have. If you haven't, don't worry, you will. It's coming. But how do we respond? Number two, God ministers. Remember that God in tender kindness, He ministers to us in our despair, even in the simple goodness of creation meeting our physical needs. Number three, God instructs. God also instructs us that when we think that God is silent, we need to remember that not only is God there in the silence, but he is working in the silence for our good and for his glory. Number four, God commissions. In light of those truths, God commissions us to fulfill our meaningful calling by faith. The work is too much for us, but it is not too much for God. He says, go to it. And number five, servant obeys. When we return in obedience to the work of the Lord, he will vindicate our faith and bless us with encouragement, especially via our fellow soldiers in Christ. You know, I mentioned in the beginning that the basic recovery protocol for an aircraft in a spin is a little bit counterintuitive. For instance, when you're going down and you're spinning, you might think that, well, obviously I need to pull the nose up. But actually, you shouldn't do that. Initially, when you're trying to reorient your aircraft, apparently, this is what I'm learning, you actually need to point the nose down so that the plane can stabilize. It's not what you'd expect to do, but it's what you need to do. It's similar when it comes to dealing with despair. Some of these things I've just mentioned to you, they are exactly the opposite of what you feel like you should do in that situation. Hopelessness has a way of grabbing hold of you and trying to pull you away from everything that you really need. I don't want to be with God's people. I don't want to experience the good of God's creation. I don't want to hear any of God's word. I ultimately don't even want God anymore. <laughs> but those are all the things you actually need. Therefore, brothers and sisters, please hear me in this. To escape despair, to come back to safe spiritual flight, so to speak, you're going to have to go against what your flesh is telling you to do. You're going to have to go against those despairing feelings. You're going to have to proceed by faith in the Lord. But when you do, you'll experience an outcome just like Elijah here. You'll be brought back to that safe flight. And you'll have the joy of the Lord again. Now, for those of you who are facing despair but don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to come to know him today. Because you're in this account too, but you're not Elijah. You're the people serving Baal in Israel. They had a false hope, which was clearly shown to be false. They're like, oh, Baal, send the rain, but he can't send the rain. Oh, Baal, send the fire, but he can't send the fire. He was exposed as utterly useless. Whatever it is that you're trusting in that's not God, it will be exposed as utterly useless. Whether it's a false god, whether it's yourself, you realize it doesn't have power, you don't have power, life's calamities are going to show this to you. What are you going to do when that happens? Even more serious, God, as your creator, deserves your worship, service, and trust. Because you're not willing to give that to him, but you instead reserve that for yourself, or you give it to another idol, God is angry. Just as he was angry with the Baal worshippers in Israel. And he will, in holy judgment, act against you. 
You say, oh, but I don't see it. I don't think it's going to happen. Well, don't forget, God is working in the silence. If you know Christ, he's working for your good. If you don't know Christ, he's working for your judgment. That judgment is not asleep. It will soon overtake you, as it did the unfaithful persons in Israel. And there will be no recourse at that time. That's why you must turn to the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only God. He is the only hope. Only His life, death, and resurrection. His amazing salvation work accomplished at the cross. That is your only way of rescue. That is the only way of rescue from your sin, from death, from the wrath of God. And then on top of all that, without Christ, you face the difficulties of life without any help. You need the Lord Jesus Christ, not only for your eternal salvation, but to have any real hope in this life. That can be yours today, but you must turn in repentance and faith. You must give up your sin. You must give up your old way. You say, I'm not the Lord of my life anymore. And you must trust in God. You say, God, my life is yours. God, there's no way I can make myself acceptable to you. It is only Jesus Christ who brings me to you, who reconciles me to God, who gives me eternal life, not my good works, not any ritual I experience, only Christ. If you will repent and believe, you have a sure hope even today. And this is not a hope like we often talk about hope. And Pastor Bobby does a good job of clarifying this too. This is not an I hope so. I hope things will work out. This is an I know so. I know things will work out because God is faithful. You know, before Jesus ascended back into heaven and he had gathered his disciples on that one mountain in Galilee, he told them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he gives a commission, therefore go out and make disciples, baptizing them in my name, teaching them everything that I commanded you. But then he gives a comfort. For behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. That's another version of what we just saw in our text today. Our Lord and God is with us even in the silence. And it's for that reason we can have peace and we can have joy no matter what we're going through. That's a great comfort. I hope that you have that comfort. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. You are.